Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to season four of the Fast Track Impact podcast. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be delving into the four components of a healthy impact culture. Research, community, purpose, and capacity. And if you want more on that framework, go back to episode one, where I describe the full framework in a bit more detail. To do this, I'm going to let you listen to a chapter of the book each week. And although there's more than one chapter for each of these four components, I'm going to focus on the chapter that has the most practical ideas in each case. And I'll start each episode with a few additional thoughts of my own before handing over to the audio version of the book. I'd like to start with research, because this is fundamental. We're talking here about a research impact culture. And I want you to think quite deeply and critically about how you do your own research, both in terms of its ethics, but also in terms of its purpose. Because I think that this is an area where most of us figure, yeah, we got this sorted. <laughs> I do ethical research, Mark, obviously. And uh, what's wrong with the, the purpose for which I'm doing this work? Uh, and very often uh, when I'm training people in this area, people have these kind of moments of revelation where they realise, huh, yeah, so I do quite regularly make policy recommendations on the basis of a single study in the conclusion of my article. Uh, and actually, when I think more deeply about this, so clearly we shouldn't be making policy recommendations based on single studies. We know that's not how policy should be made. It should be done on the basis of evidence synthesis. Uh, and yet uh, the pressure to publish in the top journals in more applied disciplines uh, means I need to be able to draw out the implications and very often those applied implications uh, may or may not be appropriate depending on the nature of, uh, of the study, if it's a case study, for example, uh, or a single system. Uh, so uh, think deeply about this because very often we don't realise that there are things we could do to raise our game when it comes to our ethics, but also our purpose as well. Uh, the vast majority of research that has been done in the history of research is about understanding the problem. Uh, and it's someone else's job, the politicians, uh, the, the, te the technologists, or whoever it is, to come up with the solution. But I would argue that given the complexity, the scale, uh, the huge challenges uh, that are facing the world today, we need to be researching solutions, trying things out, uh, and bringing to bear the rigour uh, that we can bring, uh, the, the innovativeness, the, the original thinking that we can uniquely bring to these problems as academics to try and shift from just studying studying the nature of the problems to starting to study the nature of the solutions to those problems. 
this is, uh, I think, for me, one of um, one of my favourite chapters of the book. Um, uh, I delve into uh, the to uh, John Keats' creative process and uh, develop a metaphor to get you to think about how you can do more original research that can tackle real-world problems. And uh, as with uh, the other chapters that I'll be going through over the next couple of weeks, it concludes with a bunch of practical ideas. Uh, and one of the ones that uh, I'd like to, to just pull out briefly before we dive into the chapter is this idea that we might be able to do evidence synthesis training for early career academics to produce the kinds of answers that the policy community actually need. Not just based on that one single study that I was funded to do, but putting that in a much broader context and looking to see whether the majority of studies actually agree with or it's maybe a more conflicted evidence base, and if so, why, and to do some of the meta-analysis and stats on that, etc. Uh, and of course, uh, meta-analysis, uh, evidence synthesis, it's uh, an important skill, it's a difficult skill to gain. Uh, and, uh, and so my colleagues and I, this was uh, led by uh, Dr. Gav Stewart from Newcastle University, co-funded by University of Leeds and N8 Agri-Food. Uh, and uh, I went to the policy community, uh, got a whole load of questions. And then we turn those questions into researchable questions. Not all of them would work as evidence syntheses, uh, admittedly. Uh, but for those that did, uh, we then came up with uh, our list of questions. Uh, and then we uh, recruited a group of early career academics who we then invited to a residential training. The first one went ahead, second one got interrupted by COVID um, uh, and took a bit longer, sadly, online. But we got there in the end. Uh, and, um, and the result of this then was at the end that we've got early career researchers who have skills in evidence synthesis. Each of them has a paper ready to submit to the peer-reviewed literature. So it's building their CVs as well. And each of them were given training in how to write a policy brief. Uh, and the final step then is me now giving these back to the people who asked the questions originally to say, here's a policy brief that answers your question based on evidence synthesis. And here is the full paper if you want to read the, the details of this. Uh, and this was remarkably good value. Uh, so we're talking something in the region of two to three thousand uh, pounds per evidence synthesis. And when you consider this is normally something that might cost you a hundred grand and take you a year of your life to do for a full uh, evidence synthesis, we used a, a rapid evidence synthesis technique uh, in this case. Uh, that's pretty good, uh, pretty good value for money, uh, and a nice rapid turnaround for our policy colleagues um, uh, in theory when it works. And you haven't got uh, COVID-related issues. We took longer than we'd planned. Um, so I'm going to let you uh, listen to the chapter now uh, and enjoy, uh, but hopefully loads of practical ideas that can enable you to raise your game when it comes to the research that underpins your impact culture. Chapter 11, the research that underpins your impact culture. A healthy impact culture needs to be rooted in robust, ethical and action-oriented research. Originality and academic significance might get you citations, but it is rigorous, ethical and action-oriented research that will get you non-academic impact. If a national policy or health treatment is based on research that turns out to be flawed, then the potential for negative unintended consequences is massive. 
I once worked with someone who had developed a new treatment for a serious health condition, but his work was widely critiqued by others in his field, some of whom had branded his treatment as abusive. He claimed his work was misunderstood, and I kept an open mind until I read his research and discovered that the original data consisted of a picture he had painted, which he used as a metaphor in his argument. More worrying still, it appeared that much of the traction for his treatment had come from a YouTube video in which he interviewed a single individual who had benefited from his approach. I'm not a medical expert, so I couldn't comment on whether or not the treatment was actually effective, but to my mind at least it was worrying that so many people were using a treatment that could have negative psychological impacts on the basis of such scant published evidence. On the other hand, you might be the first person to apply a theory or method to a new system or sector. The originality may be negligible, and the academic significance may be incremental, but if the application is done rigorously, it could transform that system or sector, leading to significant and far-reaching benefits for many. My own work enabling companies to pay for restoring damaged peat bogs was far from original or academically significant. In fact, to create the first draft of the Peatland Code, I copied and pasted the Woodland Carbon Code into a Word document and started editing. It had been done for woodlands, but it hadn't been done for peatlands. But as bogs store significantly more carbon than forests, if done rigorously, the Peatland Code had the potential to make an even more significant contribution to climate change mitigation. But just because companies wanted to invest didn't mean it was right to take their money. Guardian economist George Monbiot rang alarm bells that we were privatising nature and carbon sequestration projects had long been demonised as a loophole that could enable companies to greenwash business as usual emissions. The process of developing the code took seven years but as a result of our engagement with these critics, we ended up with a code that doesn't allow offsetting and is owned and managed by a conservation charity. Rigour and ethics take time, but delayed impacts are better than flawed, unethical and damaging impacts. Just look at the negative impact of Dr Andrew Wakefield's now discredited research on the MMR vaccine or the many highly influential studies from psychology that have failed to be replicated, whose findings are now thought to have arisen from the practice of data dredging or p-hacking. The open science movement is now tackling this by creating new norms in many disciplines to pre-publish research protocols and make data available for others to analyse. Most researchers take it for granted that their work is rigorous. That's the easy part. The challenge is coming up with the original idea that will transform your discipline. I'll consider that in the next section. But it is worth really questioning the rigour of your work, especially if you are tempted to overgeneralise conclusions to get into a higher-ranked journal, or your funder asks you to write a policy brief with clear recommendations based on case study research. Decisions made on the basis of single studies are liable to be undermined by the next study that comes along and makes valid but opposing claims on the basis of a different sample, time horizon or analytical method. However, there are few incentives for researchers to engage in evidence synthesis or meta-analysis 
compared to conducting new original research. More insidiously, however, there are a range of ethical issues that many researchers are unaware of. For example, female, ethnic minority, vulnerable or hard-to-reach groups may inadvertently be excluded from social science due to the timing, location or design of interviews or focus groups. More worrying still is evidence from recent research by Dr. Jen Chubb and Dr. Gemma Derrick that researchers perceive that certain gendered personality traits are better suited to achieving impact, biasing researchers and evaluators towards pursuing hard impacts that can be counted instead of softer, less quantifiable impacts. In response to some of these challenges, there is now a rich literature on responsible research and innovation. If you do an internet search for this term, you'll find a number of highly accessible guides and toolkits. This community advocates for responsible research that is inclusive, for example of genders, publics, disadvantaged and hard-to-reach groups, open, pre-publishing research protocols, pre-print papers and data, and responsive to the needs of those who might benefit from the research, providing them with opportunities to engage throughout the research cycle. Finally, as I discussed in Chapter 4, we need to move beyond researching the nature of the problems the world faces to understanding the kinds of solutions and actions that might resolve these problems. The majority of academic inquiry to date has been problem-oriented, and as a result, we now have a strong appreciation for the challenges facing the world. What the world needs now is a stronger appreciation of the options to tackle those challenges. Original thinking to change the world. If we want to tackle real-world challenges head-on, we need to become more comfortable with uncertainty. This might sound strange. Surely we need evidence and facts that we can be certain about if we want to find robust solutions to the problem the world is facing. In valuing and engaging with uncertainty, I'm not suggesting that we peddle shaky ideas. The rigour of our research is the foundation upon which we build any impact. However, I believe that becoming comfortable with uncertainty is a prerequisite to successful stakeholder engagement and the kind of engaged and original thinking we need to truly make a difference. There are two reasons for this. First, if impact means perceived and or demonstrable benefits to individuals, groups, organisations and society arising from research, as I defined it in my 2020 article in Research Policy, then what constitutes impact is very much in the eye of the beholder. A benefit to you may be damaging to my interests and vice versa. Doing research in pursuit of impact requires us to hold our impact goals lightly enough that we can pivot to the needs of other stakeholders as they become apparent, working with them, if possible in advance, to find co-benefits that might meet their needs too minimising the negative effects of our work on them, or being prepared for the attacks these groups are likely to make on our work as they attempt to defend their interests. I'll give you a tool to manage this in the last section of this chapter. Working with stakeholders is inherently unpredictable, and the sooner we get comfortable with this, the more effectively we will be able to adapt to the shifting needs and interests of those we are seeking to help. 
If we can do this, we open the door to learning from our stakeholders during the research process. This is important because these people are deeply embedded within the systems we are attempting to study and or influence. And from their perspective, they can see complexities that our disciplinary blinkers may have blinded us to. Unless we engage with these perspectives, we may come up with answers that work perfectly in experimental conditions or for one isolated part of the system, but that do not work in the messy complexity of the real world. Most stakeholders will be able to instinctively point out oversimplifications in our work, whether this is because they know things we do not and did not think of studying in our research, or because they can see links to wider systems that are beyond the scope of our work. A good example of this was a government researcher I met in Botswana while I was doing my PhD. Like me, he was studying overgrazing by cattle in the Kalahari Desert. He confidently told me that the circular patterns of bare ground around watering points must be a natural phenomenon. This was a significant finding, as everyone had previously assumed that these patterns were caused by cattle who grazed more intensively closer to the watering points they returned to every evening. He had spent many years fencing off experimental plots at different distances from these watering points so that cattle couldn't graze inside his plots. Every wet season, he would measure the plants inside and outside his plots to compare the difference of grazing versus non-grazing treatments on the vegetation. The data was clear. There was no statistically significant difference between grazed versus ungrazed plots. However, when he visited his plots, he was only interested in the plants and had never spoken to the local people. If he had taken the time to talk to the cattle herders, he would have discovered how grateful they were for his fenced plots every dry season. When there was no grass left anywhere else, they would lift the posts of his plots and let their cattle eat the grass that had been reserved there, they assumed, for times of need. His stakeholders could have explained his findings far more accurately than he could if only he had taken the time to lift his gaze from the grass he was studying to the people who depended on it. Being comfortable with uncertainty is a precaution against settling for simple answers, no matter how elegant or academically significant those answers might appear. We need to become comfortable enough with uncertainty to stay longer than we otherwise would, just wondering. The longer we look, the more likely we are to identify our assumptions and oversimplifications ask better questions, and get more holistic answers. We need to amplify and sit with our uncertainty for long enough to appreciate the complexity of the systems we study and weave that complexity into our research. This brings me to the second reason I think it is so important to become comfortable with uncertainty in our work. There is a direction to uncertainty that drives us forward towards new ways of thinking that have the potential to solve problems that have previously been considered intractable. Uncertainty is by definition at the edge of our understanding, and for this reason it fuels our curiosity. There is a restlessness about being uncertain that drives us to ask questions, to push beyond the edge of our current understanding. 
Some of us reach the cutting edge of our discipline and are content to stay there, refining our knowledge of the thing that first made our name for the rest of our careers. However, embracing uncertainty enables us to know enough about that thing we discovered so we can push beyond it. Now we can sit with the uncertainty of all the questions that we could keep asking about that one thing and instead keep moving towards the next major frontier in understanding that lies beyond what we originally discovered. Enough, in this case, requires us to be sure that what we have discovered is based on rigorous research. The rangeland ecologist I met in Botswana could have sent himself on a wild goose chase had he tried to build a programme of research on his flawed finding. But if our research is on solid ground, then we need to allow uncertainty to flourish and draw us on into the unknown if we want our research to continue pushing boundaries and solve even bigger problems. The poet John Keats considered the ability to sit with uncertainty to be an important skill which he described as negative capability. This skill was at the heart of his creative process, and as such, I believe we can learn much from him as researchers. He wrote in December 1817 to his brothers, at once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. In keeping with Keats' approach, I want to invite you to apply his creative approach by using a metaphor. Imagine standing in a field and looking out to the horizon. You can see what looks like the sea, but it is clear that there is a cliff at the edge of the farmland, and you are curious to see over the edge. However, there are fences and patches of thorn bushes at the edges of the fields that you have to get through first. If the cliff is the cutting edge of your discipline, some researchers never get there because they are unable to gain the basic competencies needed to climb the fences, or because they get distracted by the interesting but ultimately minor challenge of the thorn bushes and settle down in a comfortable patch next to them to study their ecology. If the farmland represents what is currently known, then others never reach the edge because they realise they don't need to go there. They have all they need right here, and they focus their careers on learning how to cultivate and use existing knowledge to feed others. Here I need to pause for an uncomfortable truth. Most of the problems in the world can be solved with existing knowledge. If we could just make it accessible to the right people, and enable them to use it to address the challenges they face. Resources, political will, and other factors are often more important barriers to impact than lack of knowledge. For this reason, I think we need to all regularly come back from the cutting edge to ask what can be done with what we already know, and we need to build teams that include specialists in cultivating the rich deposits of knowledge we already have whether they be knowledge exchange fellows, knowledge brokers, consultants, impact officers, or entire organisations dedicated to using the knowledge we already have. As researchers, however, there will always be the lure of that cliff edge, 
to see what is just beyond our sight. And it is this that makes research impact different to other forms of evidence-based impact. You have the potential to solve problems that have never been addressed, and to create opportunities that have never been imagined through the generation of new knowledge. Yes, you have a responsibility to make your research accessible and usable by companies who could commercialise your work, by governments who could use your work to develop better policies, and by third sector organisations who could use your work to help those they seek to serve. But you also have a responsibility to be a researcher, and that means you must never stop being curious. As a result, over many years of training and hard work, clambering over fences and finding your way through brambles, you come to the cutting edge of your discipline and look over the edge of the cliff. At this point, it may be tempting to congratulate yourself and take a well-earned break. You can dangle your legs over the edge with your seminal book in your lap, or you can look for tiny flowers in the closely grazed turf you're sitting on and start studying the ecology of the cliff edge. The challenge, however, if you want to find answers to previously intractable questions, is to step off the cliff edge into the unknown. Fortunately, you have not come unprepared. You have ropes and a harness, which are your theory, methods and training. But you don't know if they will hold in this new, uncharted part of your journey. That is why it takes real courage to take that first step over the edge into the unknown. All of your instincts will tell you to climb back up onto solid ground, and your colleagues who are comfortably inhabiting the cliff edge are likely to call you back. Some will do so because they genuinely fear for your sanity and reputation, others because you are threatening their position on the cutting edge. You look down, but the bottom of the cliff is obscured by mist. Nevertheless, you descend, and as you do so, you realise that there is an overhang. From this perspective, you can see that some of the researchers working at the edge are in fact standing on unstable ground, as the sea has undermined the rock they believed they were standing on. As you hang there in mid-air, you have to fight the urge to retreat to the apparent safety of the cliff top, but you cannot unsee the overhang and so you continue to lower yourself into the mist, believing that you will eventually either reach the solid rock of the cliff again or the beach below. But the descent feels like it's going on forever. As you pause to rest your muscles, you look up and realise you can no longer see the top. All you can see in every direction is white mist, and it is completely silent. It feels like you are hanging in nothingness. After some time, you begin to forget that there were people working somewhere above you, or even what they were doing. All you can think about is when you will reach the bottom and what you will find there. But the point is that you don't know. Being comfortable with uncertainty is deciding to just hang there a little longer, feeling what it is like to be suspended in space dangling your legs, looking for shapes in the whiteness, thinking, and eventually just being in that place. Only in that place, in between the world of the clifftop and the beach, do you have the space to really question your assumptions. 
Perhaps most of the ground you previously thought solid was in fact unstable. Perhaps there won't be a beach at the bottom, but a ravine or some other land. To fully engage in uncertainty, sometimes it is more important to unlearn than to learn. And it is in this liminal space, holding lightly everything we learned to reach the edge of understanding, that we are most likely to realise something truly original. At this point, Keats uses the metaphor of a room, so let us imagine that you descend to the bottom of the cliff into Keats's room, rather than onto the beach you initially expected. The room is white, with white walls and floor, and the white mist above would look like a white ceiling were it not for your rope fading into the eaves. Gradually, you begin to perceive the outline of multiple doors on each wall. You are curious to know what lies behind the doors, so you approach the nearest one and open it. It leads to another white room lined with doors, and you keep opening doors until you find a room with a luminous object on a small pedestal in the centre of the room. The object is original thought, but it is white like the rest of the room, and when you look away, you find it hard to locate again. Perhaps you imagined it. There are doors lining this room too. Perhaps you should keep trying new doors. The secret, says Keats, is to get comfortable and sit, looking at the object for long enough for it to reveal itself. After some time you may realise that what you are looking at isn't as original, beautiful or useful as you first imagined. But instead of moving to the door, you need to stay, perhaps moving your position to look at it from a different angle. With sufficient curiosity and attention, you eventually understand what you are looking at and what its value might be. At that point, the temptation is to describe it, write about it and tell the world, but instead you move towards it and pick it up, turning it in your hand, tapping it, testing it, experimenting with it. Only then do you place it back on its pedestal and call up to others to descend the rope and come and look at what you've found. There is a slowness about Keats's creative process that contrasts starkly with the race to find answers that we are so often drawn into in academia. With the right theory and methods, we can usually find answers of some sort, but rarely will they be the original ideas we need to answer unanswerable questions or address intractable challenges. The world needs good ideas like never before. And it is our job to come up with ideas that are both robust and original. If we want to come up with new ideas that can actually change the world, we need to start by loosening our grip on certainty. In doing so, we are able to listen more deeply to the nuances and complexities our stakeholders can see that might just challenge what we thought we knew to be certain. If we respond with curiosity, Rather than retreating to the safety of our ivory tower, we might become comfortable enough with uncertainty for it to lead us to some of the greatest discoveries of our careers. Diagnostic questions about the research underpinning your impact culture. At this point, I want to invite you to think critically about the rigour 
and ethics of your research and the research of those in your group, and whether you are asking the kinds of questions and the kinds of ways that might actually change the world. Ask yourself these diagnostic questions. How rigorous is your research? For example, do you sometimes overgeneralize, extrapolate, or in other ways oversell your findings? Do you engage in evidence synthesis? And could you do more to gain these skills or teach them to others? How ethical is your research? Do you systematically interrogate risks and assumptions in your planned pathways to impact? Do you consider potential losers as well as winners and work out how you can mitigate or reduce any negative impacts? How inclusive is your research? For example, how systematically, early and widely do you engage with those who might benefit from your work? How responsive is your research? For example, do you continue creating opportunities for public or stakeholder engagement through the research cycle so you can adapt your work where possible to changing contexts and needs? How open and transparent is your research? Might you consider submitting your next paper to a journal with a preprint server, or that allows you to use another preprint service, so that those who might benefit can access your work freely and without delay? How accessible is your data to those who would like to interrogate or build on your work? In addition to real conflicts of interests, do you also disclose information that could be perceived as a conflict and used to discredit your research if it were left undisclosed? In addition to being accessible, is your research understandable to the people who might want to use it? And if not, can you make it understandable, for example, via a blog or infographic? To what extent is your research concerned with understanding problems compared to researching solutions and understanding the actions that could be taken to address known challenges? How comfortable are you with uncertainty? Do you shy away from the messy complexity of engaging with stakeholders? Or can you sit with uncertainty, be curious? and wait for it to tell you what you need to learn or unlearn. In addition to asking these questions of yourself, you can ask them of your group. Most of the researchers I train are blissfully unaware that their work falls short in answer to many of these questions. I have to confess that the idea of submitting my work to a preprint server terrifies me, given the number of times I've had to make major revisions in response to peer review feedback, and was relieved that only my reviewers saw the version I submitted to the journal. I've only recently become aware of the conflicts of interest that others might perceive I have. As a result, I've started adding my role as CEO of Fast Track Impact, and research lead for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's UK Peatland programme to my impact and peatland papers. I know that I would never alter my research to benefit my company or the charity I work for, but others don't, and to omit this information could enable critics to undermine the credibility of my work. One of my postdocs, who is a vegan and researches vegan issues, was asked to join the board of the Vegan Society but declined on the basis that adding such a commitment to conflict of interest statements could do more to undermine her work than she could achieve by helping the society. Associate Professor Susie Wiles from the University of Auckland is a respected microbiologist 
who has suffered terrible abuse on Twitter for communicating evidence around COVID-19 because she is also candid about her personal values and how such values influence how all researchers evaluate evidence. People have then suggested that her research and advice are biased by what they perceive her political views to be. A pro-Brexit MP recently tried to discredit researchers giving evidence to a select committee inquiry on the basis that they had voted to remain in the EU and therefore any prediction of harm arising from Brexit would be politically motivated. Most of the policy briefs I've written have been requested by my funders, linked to the findings of single projects, and I unquestioningly complied with their requests. Now, I try and integrate rapid evidence synthesis to my policy briefs where possible, and where I don't have the time and resources for this, I include an introductory narrative review. Despite prizing the rigour and ethics of my research, it is surprising how little pride I have in many of my own answers to the questions I asked earlier. If you answer these questions honestly yourself, or for your group, do you also fall short? If so, what actions could you take right now? What actions could you plan or talk to someone about? How could you overcome the barriers that are preventing you from taking these actions? Four ideas to make research more robust, ethical and action-oriented. To inspire you to come up with a few concrete actions of your own, here are a few ideas. Systematically analyse stakeholders and publics using an interest-influence-impact matrix. This new generation of stakeholder analysis enables you to consider the interests, power and benefits or risks of engaging different stakeholders and publics in your research. It asks three questions. A. Interest. Who is interested in your research and what is the nature of their interest, or who would you like to be interested based on their influence and or impact? Who is currently uninterested and why are they not interested? Consider their stated interests and preferences, but then go deeper to try and understand their underpinning transcendental values, beliefs and norms. B. Influence. Who has the power to facilitate or block the generation of impacts from your research indirectly? Consider explicit hierarchical power over, as well as implicit personal and transpersonal power with. C. Impact. Who is likely to benefit most from engaging with your research and whose interests might be compromised or harmed as a result of your work? Consider both immediate and longer-term benefits and negative impacts arising from engagement with your research. If you invite two or three cross-cutting stakeholders to help with this analysis, it will be significantly more useful. Using this tool, you will discover things you didn't know about stakeholders you may have worked with for many years as you begin to put yourself in their shoes and see the issues you are researching from their perspective. You can see the full tool I use in the editable Word document accompanying this book on my website at www.fasttrackimpact.com forward slash impact culture. Either put this into Google Sheets for an online workshop or have one piece of flip chart paper per column to do this in a face-to-face -face workshop. 
do an internet search for Three Eyes Stakeholder Analysis for the full workshop facilitation guide I developed with my colleague Dr Helen Kendall. Use your findings to prioritise who to engage with first and most intensively in the development of your research as well as your pathway to impact. The next idea I want to share with you to make research more robust, ethical and action-oriented is all about managing risks arising from impact. Use your stakeholder analysis to identify risks that might arise as a result of achieving your impacts, for example for non-target groups whose interests might be compromised as a direct or indirect consequence of helping a key beneficiary. Identify risks associated with failing to achieve impacts, for example raising false expectations, eroding trust, or creating more significant problems if other actions were dependent on you achieving your goal. And consider risks arising from the methods you use to achieve impacts, for example, excluding or alienating important groups because you were unaware of cultural norms. Work out how you could mitigate those risks or make contingency plans and build them into your project or strategic plan. For example, do a stakeholder analysis to identify potential winners and losers from the outset and engage with them early to identify ways of mitigating risks and finding win-wins where possible. Through this dialogue, you can also identify and tailor appropriate ways of engaging with different groups, navigating conflicts and sensitivities where you identify these. The third idea is to practice open research. Open research platforms are growing in popularity very rapidly among some disciplines but are unheard of or opposed in others. Although most funders have required data to be deposited in repositories for many years now, a growing number of researchers are pre-registering their research so that they cannot be accused of later changing their objectives or methods to match what they found, and pre-print servers are growing in popularity as researchers put their work online for the community to scrutinise or use in parallel with the peer review process. While many of my colleagues are evangelical about this new way of working, there are risks for impact if applied research is made available and then used in policy or practice, but the peer review process reveals that it is fundamentally flawed. On the other hand, other than the controversies over who funds it, there can be little argument against the need to make research open access if we want people outside academia to read our work. Finally, my fourth idea is to make evidence synthesis more attractive and accessible. Most researchers try and make the conclusions of their research as generalizable and widely applicable as possible. Even if you are a social scientist or humanities scholar working on a small case study, you will seek to derive new theoretical insights that will be of interest to others outside that case study context. The temptation is to overgeneralize and make claims that cannot be supported by your data. Instead of overclaiming on individual studies, one of the key tasks for academics is to interpret the broader evidence base and make it accessible. There is a range of evidence synthesis methods to choose from. The problem, however, is that these take time, and there are few researchers with the skills to do the necessary analysis. In an attempt to solve this problem, I worked with international evidence synthesis expert Dr Gavin Stewart 
to create a synthesis training program for early career researchers with University of Leeds and N8 AgriFood. Gav ran two workshops for a total of 30 researchers to train them in synthesis techniques. I elicited policy needs and evidence gaps from the policy community, which we turned, where possible, into questions that could be answered using evidence synthesis. Gav and I then supported each group to produce a peer-reviewed synthesis and policy brief. Each researcher left the process with new skills and a paper. The cost per synthesis and policy brief was tiny, and because the policy briefs targeted questions that arose directly from the policy community, there is real potential for impact. A healthy impact culture is rooted in robust, ethical and action-oriented research that is not afraid to embrace uncertainty and look for new answers to old questions. There are no shortcuts. However, the time you spend questioning your assumptions, identifying risks and engaging with hard-to-reach groups that you might otherwise have further marginalised will enable you to do better research and impact simultaneously. The short-term gain of impacts based on flimsy research findings is not worth the long-term pain when everything begins to unravel.